The Stages podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of the lands on which our artists and audiences meet. We pay our respect to past, present and emerging elders. We acknowledge the important role that art has played on these lands for thousands of years and feel privileged to work alongside artists continuing the creative practice of one of the oldest surviving cultures in the world. Hello everyone, this is Kate Fitzpatrick, welcoming you to a delightful evening of conversation with the Stages podcast, live show. As you no doubt know, Stages is the podcast that converses with creatives about craft, career and what matters to them. I've been lucky enough to appear on the podcast three times, first as a guest being celebrated for a lifetime on stage, something which has sadly seemed to come to an end. Now, I have become a regular co-hosting the annual Christmas episode. Thank you for your attendance tonight. And now please welcome your host, Peter Ayers. Hello, hello, here we are. Stages podcast at Vivid. Thank you, everybody, thank you. I have waited my entire life to make an entrance down a staircase to my own theme music. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm sorry you saw the photo before. He looks nothing like that nowadays, does he? Um, but there we go. Um, great for you to be here as part of this very special occasion, my first foray into live recording in front of an audience uh, for the podcast. I'm heading, of course, towards 300 episodes, so it's nice to clock off the, the end of uh, sort of the 290s with this, uh, this series here at Vivid. Hello also to the people at home listening through the podcast platform. You might be ironing, you might be at the gym, you might be on the train, uh, but welcome and thank you for tuning in. That's the beauty of podcasting, of course. You can consume it in your own time, wherever you like. And this is the first part on the train to work one morning, pick it up the next morning. It's a wonderful, wonderful platform. So, um, so thank you for being here and tuning in. Now, people ask me frequently how the podcast started. Why have you done this podcast stages about uh, conversations with creatives about craft and career? Now, for about 15 years, I acted professionally. And, uh, of course, that exposed me to many, many great talents, actors and, and creatives who have wonderful anecdotes, wonderful stories, wonderful experiences and wonderful advice. Now, unless you're in that dressing room or that rehearsal room or that green room or that bar, you miss out on those stories. You miss out on that fabulous history. So I thought someone needs to preserve that history, record it so other people can tune in and listen. The second phase of my career, I started training young people as actors. So I started to be concerned about the creative mind. What life experience informs somebody to be a practitioner in the theatre, on a stage, on film or television, on radio, media. There's a whole lot of platforms that we cover in stages, all disciplines, theatre, musical theatre, opera, dance, ballet, vaudeville, you name it, I'll try and do it. And the third one was that teaching these young people, there was the preconception that to have a career in the performing arts, you had to do some tertiary training, you had to go to VCA or WAPA or NIDA, but that's not the case. And it certainly was confirmed to me by talking to up to these 300 people that I have spoken to now. There are many pathways to finding your place in the world 
and in particular my focus, the performing arts. So hopefully they can tune in and listen and say, you don't have to do that tertiary. It's great, it opens some doors, but people find their way in other pathways. So I thought that was essential. So those three factors pulled me together to focus, to buy a mic, chat up a few old stage mates, and a podcast is born. So, Vivid Sydney, we're here as part of a very exciting program. I want to thank Gil Minovini, who is the Artistic Director of Vivid, and Tori Loudon, who is the manager of the Ideas Program as part of Vivid, because, of course, Vivid is a celebration of the city of uh, ideas and music and lights. How could we forget lights? I've had a wonderful time. Last Friday night, I was at the opening of the Vivid Festival. I watched Sydney Harbour explode, explode into vital illumination. It was absolutely fantastic. <laughs> Sunday night, I was back there for the drone show. Was anyone down there Sunday night? Yeah. Absolutely amazing. You know, 600 drones flying in unison to create 3D images above the harbour. Absolutely spectacular. Last night, I saw Lee Sales in conversation with Aaron Sorkin. You know, Aaron Sorkin from The West Wing and um, The Social Network and Molly's Game. Fantastic writer for film and television. Tomorrow night, I'm going to walk the, high, uh, the uh, goods line um, to what, several kilometres of lights and DJs. So there's something for everybody, and I encourage you to have a look at vividsydney.com and find what's there for you. Another great show that's on in Sydney at the moment is, of course, Moulin Rouge, the, the, the spectacular musical piece of musical theatre extravaganza, which is uh, having world domination at the moment. There's productions of it opening up in every city. We, of course, have seen it in Melbourne. Did anyone see it in Melbourne? Yes. Yes? Thank you. One of you. Okay, so you've got a few more tickets that'll be sold in Sydney, Carmen. Um, go and see it. It is uh, just absolutely sensational. And I'm so thrilled that my first guest in this Stages live series is the woman who heads Global Creatures, who are the Australian company who have given birth to this Tony Award-winning musical. Ladies and gentlemen, folks, would you please welcome my first guest, Carmen Pavlovich. Hello. Hi. How are you? Hi, everyone. Nice to see you. Have a seat. A oh, oh mm. Parky doesn't get that, does he? <laughs> <laughs> oh, he does. You might probably. like staircase entrances. I find them terrifying. Really? Heels. Oh, okay. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a thing. Um, you were telling me earlier, Baz Luhrmann gave you some advice. <laughs> Well, okay, that was really for us, but no, I mean, he's given it. Well, we were laughing, we're having a photo taken, and I hate getting my photo taken. And when I had some photos recently with Baz, he said, No, you've just got to sit forward on your chair. Because I always think, Oh, I just, you know, I'm getting older and putting on weight. He's like, You sit forward on your chair. And then I also got told when you're having like a photo on, you know, like a press photo, red carpet, something like that, you lean forward a bit, makes you look skinnier. Okay? You heard it here. Thank you. <laughs> Well, you know. Right. So, at the, um, the Vivid Festival, folks at home, I'm doing a funny bit. All right, there we go. Um, so, Vivid Festival, have you caught much of Vivid? No. Well, actually, I caught a little the other night. Um, so, with all of the very difficult uh, closures and quarantine uh, requirements and... Um, trouble that we had last year when we started rehearsing Moulin Rouge uh, in May of last year in Melbourne 
And of course, the Delta outbreak started, I don't know, June, early June or something. So we had quite a complicated rehearsal process and had to do a massive dash. We rehearsed in Sydney initially um, for the studio part of it, and we had to do this big dash over the border and <clears throat> move about 100 people at 24 hours notice. Um, and just with various complications, we couldn't actually have the director of the production come from New York, Alex Timbers. So we had this unbelievable live streaming set up between the theatre and New York, and Alex's associate team was out here. So um, he never got to come. And he's just arrived this week, and he's never been to Australia before. So I said, OK, on the first day, I'm taking you to Cafe Sydney so you can look out. Yep. And... Um, just the minute we arrived to show him this spectacular view, the storm started and the wind and the rain. And we got upstairs and the Harbour Bridge was covered in fog. And I've never seen the Harbour Bridge covered in fog ever. So I was very disappointed. But then it all cleared. And as dinner happened, you know, the lights came on and, you know, it was incredible. Magical. So we both sat and had this very magical toast to Moulin Rouge and him arriving in Sydney and Vivid being on. And it was great. We're going to exchange a few ideas tonight, but, but on the theme of lights, what lights up your life? <laughs> uh, well, I'm going to give you the most boring answer, and I'm That's sorry, fine. you can groan. Feel free to groan, because I would groan if I was in the audience, but well, I, honestly, I'm just going to be honest. The thing that lights up my life, truthfully, is my children. They're 13 and 15, so they don't exactly light up my life on a daily basis at the moment, but I, I will say um, I'm just someone who desperately desperately wanted children and I you know my mother was always worried she said when I oh, you were 13 I always thought was worried you were going to kind of run off and have this teenage pregnancy because <laughs> I just really was obsessed with babies and I really wanted babies and and um I got in trouble at school actually because a teacher I remember the teachers sort of saying what do you want to be when you grow up and what do you want to be when you grow up and I said oh a mother and they sort of scoffed at me and got annoyed that I didn't have higher aspirations apparently and I I, I was sort of I remember being so taken back as a young woman because I thought, well, I will do other things, but you're asking me what's the most important thing to me. And yeah. the most important thing to me is having children. And um, I really didn't feel really very content until I had children. So it's, it, it, it's relevant. Um, you know, I guess it really informed actually the whole path of my career because I, I wanted... I wanted to have autonomy and I wanted to have freedom and I wanted to be able to do the sort of work I wanted, but I wanted to be able to have children and I really wanted to be able to do both. So that weird, like, sort of inexplicable fear and drive I had for children, I just was never going to do it until I felt I'd also achieve the kind of, you know, just to be able to do it on my terms. So that very much informed the pathway I took with study and work, so, yeah. Your career takes up much of your time. I yeah. follow you on Facebook and you're always, oh, you're always flying somewhere and, 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 <laughs> a lot and stuck of in the airport and all that sort of thing. So so balancing motherhood and, and that high-flying career, is that difficult at times? How do you, oh, yeah. how do you no, keep it's in difficult touch with the kids? Yeah, all it's the time. difficult all the time. And, um, and I do, you know, I'm careful, I'm careful to say that because, you know, this is so easy on Facebook to go, oh, look, you know, this person's got lovely hair and makeup done and they're on a red carpet and it's all, all so fun flying to New York and all the rest, and you know, behind the scenes, I'm screaming at my children, I'm barely coping, I'm feeling guilty all the time, I'm fighting with my husband all the time. I do love him, by the way, and I do like my children too, and I love them dearly, but you know, it's just like everybody, life's too busy, modern living's very complicated, mm. 
Um, the expectations on all of us, um, you know, the expectations of parents of school children. I mean, there's an expectation you're involved with your kids' education. I mean, my parents just kind of left us yeah. to yeah. it. And um, <clears throat> only when your school report come, came, sorry, <laughs> you, know, you get in trouble for a little bit. But, um, uh, you know, there's just this expectation that you're involved in every way with your kids' lives. And, um, you know, I do have a busy job and, and it's an international company, so we work across many time zones. So... The juggle's hard. Um, I am married... Well, actually, we're not married. We just stupidly say we're married, but um, we're as good as married, to Peter England, who's a set designer. And Pete and I have done a number of shows together. So when the kids were really small, we used to travel a lot and, you know, we'd have the whole catastrophe of a nanny and screaming kids and the two of us trying to do our work. Um, but we haven't really worked together since 2018 when King Kong went to Broadway... And now Pete's really, you know, in the last few years, he's just really committed to being on the home front and getting the kids through this sort of phase of adolescence because of the way my work's ramped up. And, you know, I often <clears throat> get asked, oh, can women have it all? And I think, well, depends what you mean by that. Um, yeah, and nah, because it just depends. You yeah. know, I also answer that question, I realise, from a very privileged place on a kind of worldwide basis. You know, I've lucky to be educated, I'm lucky to have grown up in a country like Australia. Mm. Um, you know, having it all takes resources. You know, we ne needed a nanny and we needed a cleaner and we needed all those things. So, I, you know, I'm always, I, I, I'm always very ambivalent about that question because I'm not someone that wanted to just kind of leave my kids with a nanny all the time. And, you know, Pete and I care about having someone at home with the kids and he's taken that on. And I, I think, I, I can't imagine how I could do the job I'm doing at the particular level the company's been at, particularly for the last few years, um, without someone really being there. Yeah. You know, we've got two pretty naughty children as well. <laughs> really? I wish they weren't. I don't know if I'm getting my comeuppance from my teenage years, but, you know, they, they, someone needs to be watching. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Yeah, they'll grow yeah. out of it. Yeah. Um, music is obviously very important to the work that you create. Yeah. What about music in your life? Is there, is there music that you uh, are drawn towards to relax or to recharge? Or? You know, I, I, I have a very kind of broad answer to that question because I have very broad, easy taste. And um, I'm someone that, you know, in the car to and from work, I never have the radio on because I get to the point where I actually can't stand noise anymore. And... Um, I always use a drive to make my phone calls and my mother always says, oh, you only ever ring me when you're in the car. And I'm like, Mum, I only ever ring anybody when I'm in the car. Yeah, yeah. And um, uh, so I'm not someone that sort of always has music on. Um, I talk a lot all day and I, sometimes I just want silence around me. Um, so I'm not someone who's just got music on all the time, but I do have, you know, very broad and great love of music, of course, and I've come come to appreciate and respect the musical form because it's not one I was um, automatically drawn to yeah. earlier in my career. Um, and, you know, I have this older brother who is, you know, like this kind of very interesting music industry guy. He has a, had success very early on. He became friends with Kurt Cobain from Nirvana when he was like 20 and... He brought Nirvana to Australia and he booked them sort of a year earlier before they were really as big as they were. And um, so he brought Nirvana to Australia when he was very young and, you know, they just knocked Michael Jackson off the charts kind of, you know, just a few weeks before they got here and it was this big thing. And so my brother was super cool and I always thought I'm really not cool. Like, I've always been very happy to own that thing in my family of, like, I'm not cool. And my brother, very kind of cool. So I just was always a bit nervous growing up about 
music. I always thought that was like his thing, his domain to own. So I, I just, I, it's something I've kind of grown into more over the years. And now having teenagers, of course, you know, I'm getting to sort of experience music and a new generation of artists through them. So I really have a very broad musical taste. I like melody. I'm just someone that really does like melody. Yep. And, um, you know, I, actually recently I told the kids that Kylie Minogue was coming to see Moulin Rouge in Melbourne. And they were like, who's that? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what? I know, yeah. <laughs> who's that? Even Kylie's old, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's hard to keep up. My daughter's very much into Billie Eilish, so I've really quite gotten into Billie Eilish listening So you to have her. to research Billie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So you and your brother are carving entrepreneurial careers. Yeah. What did your parents do? Did they Were they artistic and creative in any way? So... Um, so I had a very working class upbringing in Canberra. My dad was Croatian. He's no longer alive. Um, he, you know, fled Croatia as a young man after the war. He had been branded an enemy of the people um, from graffitiing something against communism on the back of the toilet doors at school. So um, he kind of had a bit of a target on his forehead and he was quite rebellious. He disliked his stepfather intensely and... He ran away with two friends over the border in a rather daring escape um, and they went across the border to Austria and then immigrated to Australia and like a lot of immigrants arriving at that time, he worked on the Snowy Mountain River scheme mm. and so a lot of um, those immigrants were kind of based in Canberra and used to do that travel um, for the works, week's work and then come back at weekends. So he met my mum there, my mum's Australian and when they got together actually it was quite unusual for the time and a lot of her family wouldn't go to their engagement party originally. So that was sort of, my parents were quite conservative and like I said very sort of suburban up class but I always, I kind of had this sense that they were, they're, you know, rebels in their own way and I think for um, uh, me and my siblings, I'm one of six kids, um, I think growing up in Canberra knowing that we had this dad that had escaped and he sort of was an enemy of the people that kind of gave us a sense of that there was something bigger out there and, yeah. you know, your dad went in search of a bigger life and so I think for all of us that was an idea that was seeded very early on. Um, in my household, everything just had to be done very well and I often say that. And my dad was an incredible cook, an unbelievable cook. People would come from near and far for my father's cooking. Um, all the bands my brother used to tour, they'd always detour through Canberra and come for one of Ivan's meals. You know, he grew his own vegetables, made his own stock, made his own cheese, smoked his own meat. Um, and my mum, she's very creative too. You know, it's just everything was always very beautiful. If you, if you set the table, she'd always pick beautiful flowers and she wraps presents beautifully and they were forever renovating our home. So, you know, we weren't a theatre family. I never got taken to the theatre as a child. Wow. No, God, no. Um, you know, my parents, my dad worked three jobs. My mum was a stay-at-home mum. I mean, I barely managed two children. She had six children. I mean, five of us were born kind of 12 and 15 months apart. So, and then there was this 10-year gap and my little sister Angie was born. But, um, you know, I felt um, my dad was a glassblower when he left Croatia. Um, but so we were around creativity. It was very much seeded in family life. But there was no, you know, it's not like my parents were playing the piano and... Um, God, I mean, I just Sing along Croatian music and Nana Muscuri. <laughs> <laughs> sort of what was always on the record player in our house. Um, but definitely, uh, you know, my brother was very drawn to music from a young age, of course. And um, so and I have a sister who's an artist and, you know, I have a younger brother who's deeply creative. And I guess there's just, I don't know, there's just something in the family, I guess, yeah. But also uh, sowing the seeds of a great work ethic. 
Yeah. Which, which oh, my dad was terrifying. I mean, he was a grumpy Croatian. He, yeah. you know, he was up at five and he worked a cleaning job and he did his normal job and then he did another cleaning job at night and he had six naughty kids who did no school work and he put us all through private schools and he sort of... I mean, honestly, I look yeah. back now and I think, like, I can't believe he didn't throttle all of us. Like, <laughs> just kind of working, working, working. And, um, uh, yeah, it just... Everything just... They just worked. That's all they did. And, you know, Saturday morning we all had to clean and help and do all those things. So there was a great a great work ethic um, instilled in our fa family, yeah. Well, as well as your two children, there's another baby of yours at the moment which uh, is about to sort of have birth given to it on, on um, Saturday night, two nights away, is opening night of uh, Moulin Rouge in Sydney. Yeah. Do you get nervous? What's it like this this close out? I'm... N I'm Certainly not nervous. Um, I mean, these days, I guess we're all nervous all the time about, gosh, what's going to happen this week, you know, because it's sort of... I just was in Chicago a few weeks ago because we had... Um, Who did you play, Velma or Roxy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, music theatre people are here. <laughs> That's funny. Very quick. Um, I was in the city of Chicago right. and the Windy City because we were launching um, a North American tour of Moulin Rouge and, uh, you know, we'd had this very incident-free rehearsal period and, of course, the day before opening night, four of our principals got COVID. Wow. So we had to kind of throw these understudies on and cancel the opening night party because it's not a very good look to, you know, be having parties when there's no. sick people. Just ask Boris. Yeah, that's yeah. right, quite. <laughs> so... Um, we had to cancel the party and we had to, you know, get move the reviewers and we'd done that in London twice and we'd done it in Australia twice and so, you know, you sort of dust off that speech for the cast and go and give it again and um, so I'm, I'm always nervous to think, oh, God, what's going to go wrong now? But I just think, okay, we're only two days away. Hopefully nothing's going to stop us. I especially us. in that mindset of expect the unexpected. That's Correct. what everybody has of to course, do Of course, and, and it just doesn't go away. Yeah. It really doesn't. Uh, nervous uh, when Moulin Rouge was launching, for sure. Mm. So when we opened in Boston, which was our pre-Broadway engagement, um, you know, and the way that works is... Um, Historically, reviewers, it's only been reviewed locally and um, so it was always, you know, understood as an opportunity for a local review and then an opportunity for the show to do the work if there needed to be more work um, before attempting to go to Broadway. That's shifted a bit in the last few years and, you know, even the New York Times where they consider it a show of significance will come and review it out of town. So there was a lot riding on the Boston Reviews and the infamous Ben Brantley from the New York Times who, you know, a lot of shows live and die by with that one review. Yes. Um, he came and, uh, of course, we were very nervous with Ben in and uh, got this just incredible review. I mean, it was just outstanding and it, it generated a lot of buzz. Um, and then Ben reviewed it again when we opened on Broadway and I, I just, you know, I didn't dare dare dream or imagine that he'd give us such a great rave two times in a row. He's a hard marker. Oh, gosh, yeah. he's yeah. really... And, you know, um, anyway, we did get a great review from Ben, which was nice. I mean, uh, you know, on Broadway you can get 200 fantastic reviews and a terrible review from Ben, who's since retired. Um, but, you know, people go, oh, so it's terrible you got such bad reviews or you know you could get the other way around and it just often that sort of one New York Times review really you know it really becomes the defining thing about the show and of course I'm sure we'll come back to this but um, you know we got that review from 
been, it was July of 2018, and uh, I would say that was really one of the best reviews the New York Times has really ever given a new musical. And yet I think I could also lay claim to getting one of the worst reviews the New York Times ever given a show on Broadway with King Kong, which was, you know, they were within months of each other. So you can imagine that sort of schizophrenic feeling and I have towards... as well? It was... Uh, well, the Kong review was interesting because it was Brantley and Jesse Green in conversation. Right. And um, so, you know, they had a little... Chit Chat was their review. Well, oh, what did you do last night? Oh, I saw Kong, King Kong, and so off they went. So, you know, for me, the just experience of the two of them was just couldn't have been at sort of greater ends of the spectrum. Um, so that New York's terrifying, actually. I mean, the nerves are really significant there. Um, and, you know, of course, I was hopeful to have great reviews again in Melbourne, which thankfully we got. Um, it's terribly nerve-wracking because there are times when reviews really don't matter um, and sometimes they really can matter. And, you know, of course, just as a member of the industry, of course you want to be liked. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you're in the business of, with Global Creatures of creating a whole lot of new projects. You, you don't bring in the latest production mm -hmm. of, of South Pacific or Rogers and Hammerstein or whatever. And, and no diss against the producers that are doing that because we all love those old favourites. So it's very much new work that you're doing. Uh, Muir's Wedding, um, How to Train Your Dragon, Walking with Dinosaurs, uh, Strictly Ballroom. Yeah. Can critics be a hindrance when you're trying to get something up and on? Uh, are they fair enough or do you think that they're sometimes like vultures circling to... Um, to chew on the prey. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, people often ask me, do reviews matter? And I think um, I think they matter less over time, you know, as social media's kind of, you know, grown in the way that it has. Um, and, I, I, you know, I do feel they don't automatically... You know, there are many shows that have gotten dreadful reviews but have sold very well, and, of course, there are many shows that have gotten fantastic reviews and inexplicably not sold. Mm -hmm. So there's no perfect formula... Um, I do think great reviews um, help generate buzz and great excitement and can sort of help with momentum yep. um, for a show. Um, and I think, you know, in, King's Con in King Kong's case on Broadway, I think they really sunk the show. There's no, no doubt in my mind about that, actually. Um, but audiences who went along from all accounts loved it. Yeah, King they Kong. did. It, it was... Um, I think had we been in a smaller venue, and I, it's really one of my regrets on Broadway that we didn't go to a smaller venue, I think because the inventory management became very hard and it's a very sort of unwieldy large venue, I think um, I think the show would have lasted a lot longer. I really do. Um, yeah, we had we actually had really good ticket sales there, but it, it just wasn't it just wasn't enough. And on Broadway, you know, you've got to be better than good and you, you need a great, you know, you need a great... Um, head of wind, um, really there's just lots of things that have to come together to generate that mm. success. Mm. So, um, I don't. I mean, I'm also pretty philosophical about re reviews, to be honest, because I don't mind when there's a through line that I think, oh, yeah, that, that's fair enough. You know, there's been a number of reviews we've had over the years where I think, no, that's actually fair feedback for the show. And I, you know, I respect criticism. I certainly never expected a good review from the New York Times for King Kong, but I would have respect, expected a respectful one. Yes. And I, you know, my, what I took umbrage with over that was not getting a bad review. That's, that's fine. That's anyone's prerogative. Um, 
But I just thought it was an incredibly disrespectful piece of writing and I actually thought it was beneath the New York Times and, mm. you know, certainly, you know, I know that was but just very emphatic feedback um, the Times had as well. So I, I guess where I find reviews disappointing is when they're kind of personal or snippy or trying to be too clever for their own... Yeah, become smart-asses and think, look how funny I can be in, in dissing this show yeah. rather than being constructive and actually evaluating yeah. what all of those elements yeah. are. Yeah, because, you know... Uh, um, I think, honestly, anyone that gets a show open, just even that feat is so... It's so hard, you know. It's a very hard process. And, and creating new work is obviously... It's, you know, putting on any show is hard, but creating new work... I mean, Cameron McIntosh, I remember many years ago, said it's ten years from page to stage, and that is the truth of it. Um, you know, it was ten years to get King Kong to Broadway. It was ten years to just get the rights together for Moulin Rouge and get it open on Broadway, let alone what we then do to roll the show out around yeah. the world. Um, Muriel's Wedding, you know, we had... By the time we opened at Sydney Theatre Company in... What was that? 2015? I'm looking at Nick Hart there in the audience. I see you. <laughs> 2015, 14. Um, you know, that we'd been at it for six years yeah. by then. Yeah. And we're doing a, um, a lab uh, that was just announced last week of Muriel's Wedding in New York later on this year. And I just thought, gosh, you know, if we're lucky... We'll find a season for the show in the US, you know, next year or the year after. And then if, you, uh, if you're lucky, it'll then go to Broadway. And again, it's easily going to be a 10-year journey if the show makes it that far. So, you know, I do think um, some respect is should be accorded to that process. And, yeah. um, you know, I often reflect um, on our ambitions as a company and I... I think if you look at the creative teams that were assembled for, um, say, both King Kong and Moulin Rouge, say, on paper they had no better or worse chance of succeeding than each other. Mm. Um, all fantastic um, artists at the top of their game, both projects very ambitious. Um, they could have been a terrible version of Moulin Rouge. You know, you can imagine that version that didn't yep. succeed. Yep. Um uh, you know, Jack Thorne's just a renowned playwright, film and television uh, writer. Um, John Logan, but hadn't written a musical before. John Logan, prolific playwright and um, Hollywood writer as well, never done a musical before. Um, both of our choreographers had never worked on Broadway before. Um, but, you know, people at the top of their game and terribly successful. So, you know, that element of alchemy that makes one show succeed more than another, they're just... You, that you can't work that out on the page. That's something that kind of comes in the process with a team together and or it doesn't. And that's why I just feel like a level of respect um, for the for the work and, and the effort is required there. And really that's expressed by um, just being constructive. Mm. Yeah, I, I appreciate constructive reviews. With but it's always fun reading it. <laughs> it's always fun reading it. It's, Nasty review about someone else. <laughs> someone else's show. Yeah. Well, I mean, when they're witty, I don't she, mean because they're nasty. Right I mean, sometimes they are very funny, I have to admit. We've been looking at some visuals of the show. Oh, oh, uh, you have too. They're behind us on the big screen. Yeah. People at home, I'll put them on the um, pay, uh, stages, socials, so you can have a look. Um, tell us what... Tell us about Moulin Rouge. It's a very very immersive show, isn't it, when you go, go to see it? How, how would you describe it? Um, well... Uh, I mean, immersive is one of those words, isn't it? That uh, I don't know. That I hear people it, can repel some people. You no, know, I just think uh, you know it's been a big shift in entertainment in recent years, where you know 
you can sort of hear people a lot trying to create immersive experiences. And um, I know when we had our early conversations about Moulin Rouge and well, what does it mean to take this film and make it succeed on stage and um, what what is it? Because it was stylistically, it was a very particular film with those fast edits and... Um, you know, a friend of mine described, have you seen Moulin Rouge? It's like taking ecstasy and going to a karaoke bar. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> yeah. the other thing that has said to me constantly over the years is, oh, oh Baz's films are so theatrical, aren't they? I see that we strictly bore in Moulin Rouge. Oh, Baz's work's so theatrical. And, um, and it is. Yeah. But what makes Baz's work feel theatrical as a film is not the thing that's going to work on stage. No. And it's only when we started pulling apart both these titles of Strictly and Moulin Rouge, um, think, okay, yeah, those whip pan cameras and that kind of, you know, like panto humour with the Duke and those sort of things. If you tried to have a character like the Duke is in the film yes. and put that on the stage I, and, and the kind of farce that there is at the end of Moulin Rouge, trying to recreate that on a stage, we just thought it's going to come across as pantomime. We actually have yeah. to ground the character more and ground the stakes you know, uh, increase the stakes and just ground the show more. So, you know, the Duke in the stage show of Moulin Rouge, he's a credible love threat um, to Christian. He's someone who's Not sort of fault. dashing and young and yeah. um, really does give Satine the promise of a, a different and better life, his version of a better life. Um, so, you know, we had to really kind of wrestle with those elements, but but back to the idea of, like, Immer you know, what makes it immersive. Like, we just talked about is you have to feel like you're in the club and you have to and feel like you're part of the club. Right? They come right out into the auditorium, the yeah. seats, and, and there's a lot of break in the fourth wall. Yeah, so, right. the you know, it's hard to really see where the set ends and, the, you know, that, that line's very blurred between... Because audience sitting there, we can see it there around the... What do you call that? The yeah, the, the passerelle. passerelle. Yeah, the passerelle. Yeah. Um, the audience that, that's sitting there in the middle of it. That's it's right, and the, in that sort yeah. of intersection is the cabaret seating. We call them the can-can seats. And so those bridges, you know, the sides of the passerelle retract so we can get people in and out. Um, and then the rest of it's more conventional theatre seating. But um, it does sort of bring the show out. And what you can't see there, of course, is the giant... Um, windmill elephant, and elephant yeah. that kind of flank the stage, and that's the dressing room scene. Um, the you know, that's the elephant in, of Satine's dressing room. But then in the theatre itself, there's a large elephant and windmill out to the side. And if you sit in the dress circle, it just makes you feel like you're sitting so close to it. Actually, it's mm. really quite incredible. Um, and that's true of the show in you know a number of venues where we're running around the world. And so. I know it was really important to the team that from the minute you not take your seat, but the minute you walk into the auditorium, you're like, wow, I'm in the club. And actually this idea of being in the club, it really was a fundamental way to the fundamental idea to the way we worked the whole way. We wanted everyone to feel like they were welcome and we wanted everyone to feel like they were part of a club. And that went for the cast, the crew, people backstage, it went for marketing, publicity, all of us, it kind of you know, every decision we made had to sort of have this gut check of, are you part of the Moulin Rouge movement? Are you part of part of the club? Do you, do you, does it make you feel welcome? And does it make you feel like everybody's welcome at Moulin Rouge? Well, I think your design reference in the script was it's part nightclub, part dance hall, part theatre, part dreamscape. Yeah. 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 And there's something in there about sex and smoke as well, which I know our set designer kind of leaped on as well. It's like, okay, sex and smoke, got it. 
a right. nice place to visit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but for a musical, it's quite extraordinary in that um, there are 70 songs which are featured in the show, which means I think there are about 161 writers that are credited yeah. and there's 30 licensing companies That's that right. own those songs. The publishers, yeah. That must have been a logistical challenge to secure the rights for all of the songs because uh, there's nothing original. They all come from, from artists' established songs. How did you go about that? So we say that um, Moulin Rouge is 120 years in the making because <laughs> the, the musical... Well, got everything from Offenbach to Lady Gaga. Exactly. Yeah. And the, the years of um, music catalogue that spans is really quite remarkable. There's a lot more music in the live show than there is in the film. And I don't want to um, um, correct you, but there's actually 75 songs, I think. Well, we normally say more than 70. I don't know why, but the fact is there's 75. Right. And, it's um, always good to say I more than, Does that isn't sound it? better? Yeah, more yeah, than, maybe yeah, it more sounds than, better, yeah, but the yeah. truth is there's 75 songs. Um, it's like why things are $199 rather yeah, exactly. than $200. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, I've often said that everything we did on every other production we've produced today, good and bad, right or wrong, has kind of led to this version of Moulin Rouge that we created. Now, I know that if we'd done Moulin Rouge first, um, it I, d I just would have been a different show and I don't think it would have had the benefit of our growth as individuals and our growth as a company. So we had some um, exposure to licensing, of course, with Strictly Ballroom and then Muriel's Wedding and certainly with King Kong. So we'd started started to learn the ropes of who's who and how these deals have to be constructed. So when it came to Moulin Rouge, we, we knew it was a massive undertaking. We engaged, um, you know, a licensing ex expert in the US, um, uh, Janet Billing-Rich, and she's kind of fun. She used to manage Courtney Love and she's just one of those people that knows everybody in the music industry and all the publishers. So she's been a really important member of the team. Um, and actually, I'm super excited because the other really most... I mean, I, honestly, I feel like I end up with a lot of the credit for the licensing, but the truth is that gentleman sitting there, Nick Hart... Um, well done, Nick. Yeah, Nick <laughs> uh, was head of business and legal affairs for the company. He's now COO. Um, but Nick really oversaw the licensing um, with Janet and uh, me. And it, it was a fascinating experience. And for me, it was probably one of the most interesting aspects of, of working on the show. It was very challenging. And people frequently see the show and come and say to us afterwards, did you actually have to go and license every one of those songs? And we say, yes, we had to. You had to go to Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones. Yes, we had to. Um, so did anyone knock you back? Yeah, totally. Yeah, right. not, not too many, actually. Not too many. We, we pretty well got every song we wanted. And... Um, you know, the way licensing generally works, and I'm just going to speak in very general terms here, but artists have approval over use of their work and their publisher has approval over the commercial use of that work. So you're actually getting two approvals, really, for every song. And then a song can have ten credited songwriters. You know, people often think, of course, whoever the vocalist was who I know is the artist. Well, no, there's often a number of credited composers and each one of them have to give approvals. So... You know, there was a, um, I think this is okay for me to say, but uh, we really wanted to license Uptown Funk. Yes. And there are 10 credited writers on that show. And for the particular moment that the creative team wanted to use, it was a really significant moment in the show. And uh, so I started there. And I went to Mark Ronson first, um, who my brother actually introduced me to, very helpful. And uh, he agreed. And it, it was an early blessing because I didn't want the creative team to get so used to... Um, you know, working with a song that they then couldn't use. So 
we thought, great, fantastic, we've got it. And you know, we then sort of slowly got nine approvals. Oh, we got nine including Mark and the publisher had agreed. And sometimes there's more than one publisher managing a song. And then at the last minute, Bruno Mars just wouldn't, just wouldn't agree. And um, I mean, I respect his reason. He said, that's my song, that's my art. I don't want it used in another context. And, you know, try as we did <laughs> every contact. We lobbied in every way. We made demos of it. You know, we tried everything. But I he bet he regrets just, it now. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe yeah. he thinks um, that's my art and I do not want it used there. Who knows? But there were very few instances like that. And, you know, certainly Baz was great at just reminding the creative team that it, 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 every knockback like that created a creative opportunity. And, you know, he always else. reminded mm -hmm. us on the film that that um, nature boy that leads that is the opening credit of the film. Um, nature boy wasn't their original choice. Their original choice was Father and Son by Cat Stevens, Yusuf Islam, um, and he'd knocked it back. Yeah. Um, so in the end, they had to kind of come up with something else and found Nature Boy, and you know that actually really changed the beginning of the film as well. You can yeah. actually search an animatic online that has. You know, it was an early pitch that they'd done to the studios of how Moulin Rouge would begin and it's got father and son and the story sort of Ewan McGregor leaving, um, you know, leaving his dad's working factory yeah. and going to find his own life. So, you know, you can see that just that one piece of music actually radically choice. altered mm. the whole beginning to Moulin Rouge, the film. So, um, you know, we had a couple of knockbacks like that. Um, and, you know, the, the Rolling Stones was, was tricky to get, very tricky to get. Um, but in the end, we took that as an opportunity because we got an initial knockback, actually, and um, we... Justin um, Levine, who's the music supervisor, he then created this whole medley, which becomes the introduction for the Duke, and that was approved because of that. But that kind of you know, making a version that Mick Jagger and the rest of the band would go, okay, we're excited about that. These are incredible opportunities to, to have, yeah. yeah. The musical has gone on to win 10 Tony Awards. Yeah. What was it like winning a Tony? It was pretty great. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was pretty great. I mean, the Tonys are, you know, there's a lot of pressure and, 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 and they really do make a difference at the box office. And... You know, in the you you know on Broadway they are um, very well understood, um, very like I said, very impactful on the box office, uh, very impactful on artists' careers. So if you are a Tony-winning set designer or a Tony-winning director, I mean your currency and the sort of deals you can oh, ask yeah. for really increases exponentially. So um, you know, and they're a great honour in the industry. So. It's a big deal over there. The Tony race is very stressful. There's a lot riding on it um, in a way that I haven't seen in any of the other markets. It's, it's different with the Olivier's in the West End and, you know, certainly different with the Helpman Awards in Australia. Um, so the pressure was on. And, of course, uh, when Moulin Rouge opened and opened as it did, we, we were... We were a Tony contender. Everyone was sort of, oh, you know, just so brilliant at the awards. And I think, don't say it to me. Don't, don't say it. Shh. <laughs> don't I'm, not, I'm not going to talk like that. I mean, I just would. I mean, just would be too scared to yeah. dare assume it. Um, so, and then of course the whole pandemic happened. So well, it was the first awards I think in 18 months or two years. Yeah. So yeah. the um, Broadway shutdown happened on the 12th of May of 2019, and the Tony Awards were happen every June, so they were cancelled in 2019. 
And then it just was always this question of when are they going to go on? What form are they going to take? Because everybody thought Broadway would be back after a few months. It was going to be six weeks and it was going to be June. Then it was going to be September. I mean, it just went on. And, of course, every show has a Tony budget and you're kind of working out when to spend that money and when to try and talk to voters and communicate the work of, of, of everyone on the show. So it was quite tricky. And then eventually it got announced for September last year. And <clears throat> I thought... Um, it was good, actually, because it was set to coincide with Broadway's reopening. So the West End kind of, you know, open, close, open, close the whole time. Broadway shut, and it shut for 18 months, and there was not a single theatre that opened in that period of time. So when theatres started reopening in September of last year, right? Yep. Was it last year? Yep. Oh, gosh. I know. It's just a blur now, I isn't know. it? The whole, well, of course, we were supposed to have our first um, preview of Moulin Rouge in Melbourne on the 13th of August. That We had our dress rehearsal... Brilliant. And has said, everybody, sorry, now you have to go home. And it was another 13 weeks before we performed. So um, that happened in August. And then suddenly the Tony Awards were on and, you know, we were able to reopen on Broadway. So I went over for that. It was a very odd trip, I will say. I flew... Well, Qantas wasn't flying at the time. So I flew... Um, oh, Delta... I was thinking, why would this airline be called Delta at this time? And it's like, gosh, I mean, I bet you their marketing department's yes. not enjoying this particular moment in history. And I was one of 10 people on the flight. There were 15 crew working and it was a very odd flight. And I got to New York and it felt really odd to me. You know, there was a lot of, lot of anxiety still. A lot of things were still really shut down. Um, very heavy protocols, of course, in the theatres. And, you know, during that um, period, of course, there'd been the whole George Floyd murder and the sort of, you know, ensuing revolution and call to arms. And it was a call to arms in the US, you know, no doubt. And there was a lot of anger from a lot of people um, in the Broadway community. So, you know, it's a very tense place to walk back into. Um, it was striking. But that... Tony weekend, Mullen Rouge's first performance back after 18 months was on the Friday night, and that was, I mean, electrifying. You could have lifted the roof off that theatre. It was so... I, I'll always be so grateful that I had the chance to be in the audience that night. It was deeply moving, and, you know, any time one of the actors entered, the audience were on their feet and standing ovation, and, oh, look at me, I'm You're getting teary. Remember, it was really incredible. Um, it was incredible. So You were presented by uh, Cheetah Rivera... And Lord Andrew Lloyd Webber yes. presented your award. Uh, I just want to quote um, just a part of your speech. I feel that every show of last season deserves to be thought of as the best musical. The shows that opened, the shows that closed, not to return, the shows that nearly opened, and of course the shows that paused and are fortunate enough to be reborn. That's, that was incredibly generous. Oh, in well, a, that's very nice of you. Speech. Thank you. But I, I mean, I, I did feel quite self conscious, to be honest, because. Um, you know, by the time those Tony Awards happened, they were, you know, 15 months later than what they should have been. There'd been so much hardship. And it felt to me um, not like the sort of night of being self-congratulatory. You know, I was always aware during the pandemic that um, we had a lot of hardship. Like everybody else, we'd lost our income. Um, you had 25 members of the company, I think, that came down with COVID. Yeah, they did. We were days. really very early on. Um, we'd shut the show. We'd taken off the matinee that, and then that afternoon we'd taken it down ourselves because we had a couple of temperatures and we were worried about the cast. And then at 5 o'clock that afternoon the governor shut Broadway down. 
so that was it. We just everybody went home and. How do you look after the welfare of of your people during during uh, that time? Well, you know, we had people strewn around the world. We had the Broadway company. Um, uh, we had London. Um, you know, we were about we were heading into you know due to head into rehearsals. Well, I don't remember now. We we're putting London on sale. Something else that we stopped. But we've got you know we've got an office in London. Um, we had rehearsals or auditions due to happen in Australia and a lot of, you know, international creatives travelling here as well. And, you know, I just got really worried about people being stranded and not being able to get home. Um, we had to very quickly audit around the world um, just what different insurance coverage was. You know, I just never have been so grateful to live in Australia as I, I was at that time because, you know, I could drive out of my house in Bondi or walk to that corner and get a test or I could go to St Vincent's and get a test. I could yeah. go anywhere. Uh, we just couldn't get people tested in the yeah. US and it was just, just just really, really hard for people. You know, we, you know, we were able to contribute to just keep people's insurance going there because, you know, in America, if you haven't got insurance, you just, you just sunk. It's, it's very, very frightening. So we were, you know, we were really um, just mindful to make sure that everybody was okay. People had food. They'd been reunited with family if they need, you know, whatever they needed. That we just kind of, it was a period of just preserving welfare. And then the next, you know, I'd say that was the first few months. And then the next few months were really very much about looking at people's mental health. And then that continued because that became the very big challenge. And so I knew, we, you know, we sh we'd shelve our plans everywhere. We had five productions that we were about to roll out, and everyone said to me, "Oh, you know, Moulin Rouge, you must be finally you've got this hit." Um, and now it's shut. It must be so depressing. And it was. But I didn't like to complain about it because, you know, I just thought on a worldwide basis, we were one of the lucky ones. I knew yeah. Moulin Rouge would come back. Yeah. And I knew Moulin Rouge is a big international title. We'd done very well at the box office, thankfully. So, you know, we weren't, we weren't struggling. Um, you know, we had the resources to come back. And I know there are many shows that have struggled to have the money to even remount themselves. So I didn't like to complain because I, I really... I knew there was an opportunity for us to be part of that regeneration of the industry. And we had a really tough time deciding whether to let Moulin Rouge go ahead in Melbourne last year on its right. original schedule. Um, I, I felt almost irresponsible. I was really nervous about whether it was going to be a great scandal and, um, you know, it's not a cheap show to put on. Um, but, you know, we kind of... I said to Jerry, my business partner, oh, gosh, Jerry, this could just be the most irresponsible thing we've ever done. And he said, I know, but you and me are like that. So <laughs> let's just keep going. Oh, oh, I can tell we're doing this. I said to him, we're doing this, aren't we? And he's like, we're doing this. And he said, I want to do this for Melbourne. And I said, I'm with you. You know, really... I get it. If we don't do it now, it'll be years before we can get the theatres together again here. And a show like Moulin Rouge should have gone ahead because it has the opportunity to create jobs and, you know, give work to workshops and to lighting companies and sound companies and, and feed that ecosystem that just so desperately needed to be refunded, to climb back out. And also the show is about show people fighting to save their theatre. Yeah, and we thought, yeah. well, we can't really put on a show a like team. that and not yeah. do it ourselves, so we better just keep going. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I really am pleased that we did. I mean, it's terribly hard. I mean, my gosh, it was so hard. But, but I, you were I, adapting to the new COVID absolutely. environment. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I spoke to people in wardrobe who were doing fittings via Zoom or sending off paper cut, uh, how to measure themselves, uh, actors how to measure themselves. Yeah, we were laughing about it. Actually, I dropped by... Um, 
the wardrobe department here, who, by the way, have done such brilliant work on the show that the costume designer, Kathy Zuber, is like, I've never seen such great work anywhere, so now she's got them building costumes for all of our productions around the world. Fantastic. So isn't that nice? That's great. Um, but uh, we were laughing about it yesterday because... I mentioned earlier that we'd rehearsed in Sydney during the studio part of the rehearsals, and so normally that's a, a time where you would be fitting um, cast, doing their head measurements for wigs, and um, nonetheless we sort of knew the border was going to... There's always this threat of border closures, if you remember. Um, and so there were some costumes that we had someone drive, some of the makers, and there's many bespoke makers that make costumes and do beading and all these, you know, there's a lot of... A lot of individuals um, that make up wardrobe manufacturing. Um, and I remember we had to um, book a hotel on the outskirts of Sydney somewhere because we calculated for this person to drive. We sent the cast there in an Uber, put them in this weird hotel in Parramatta or something. Must have been further than Par Liverpool. And this maker drove, I think, from Victoria across the border, fitted the costumes, turn around, drove back before the midnight curfew and then we brought the wow. cast back to rehearsals and it was just, again, a matter of hours that we had to sort of get this work done to stick to our schedule. And in, when we moved to Melbourne, everybody had to quarantine and um, it was very hard to get people over the border so we had to have these special applications to get our wardrobe makers from the workshop here in Sydney to Melbourne and then they had to quarantine for another two weeks. So we were fitting people in bubbles and then dropping the costumes to their hotel room doors in quarantine and then we'd have to run away and then they're allowed to open the door and take the costume in and sit there and stitch it in there. So you think, oh, my God, that was at the Mantra Hotel on <laughs> Russell Street. <laughs> and uh, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like childbirth now. You know, we sort of moved on and we're in the theatre and... You forgot you, the pain. You forget the pain, but it was terribly complicated setting in which to, to put the show up. Yeah. But there's still COVID practice happening, I, I guess, with, oh, yeah, with the production. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, there. for sure, masks for sure. Backstage, masks, and, yeah. bubbles, testing, testing, yeah. testing. I mean, the amount of money we spend on testing is just extraordinary. Um, but, you know, back to where we started on this point, which was the Tony Awards. Yeah. Yes, how could you stand in front of everybody and, yeah. you know, bang on about our show and how brilliant we all are? I mean, that was not, I thought, the moment. I really felt it was a moment of the industry coming together and being in a room for the first time and that meant celebrating everybody and it meant acknowledging the loss and the hardship. And to me, Moulin Rouge was very fortunate to be the representative of all of the shows that night and that whole pandemic period. So, um, you know, it was, it, was, it was a really great night. It was a lot of fun. We had an outdoor party in Central Park and um, to be COVID safe and it was, it was a great honour because, of course... Um, we were the first Australian company to originate a show on Broadway and subsequently the first Australian company to win a Best Musical um, Tony Award. So it's a great source of pride in and of itself as a producer of a show, but certainly uh, for Jerry and I and the aspirations we had to build a company that could play legitimately on a world stage, that was a great moment for us as a company, for sure. Yeah. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Very good. Oh, sweet. Very good. Yeah. And we definitely played the long game. I mean, there's no doubt that, you know, Jerry, I really, really credit Jerry a lot in his um, appetite. You know, Jerry financed the company in the early days and that took a long-term thinker to have the sort of stomach for the, the, the long-term development it takes to, to get that kind of hit. Yeah. Is it daunting enjoying this world domination at the moment because there's productions happening all over the world? 
There are. We are working on 10 productions at the moment. I think we've announced seven, but we're working on 10. Um, so we've opened Broadway, the North American tour, the West End in Australia. And during that time, we also cast in local language a production for Germany, which will open this year, Korea, which will also open this year, and Japan, which will open next year. And Japan actually casts years in advance. I mean, can you imagine our response last year? <laughs> We were told, oh, no, no, we have to cast the show. We're like, but we're reopening Broadway. We're always, oh, my God, how are we going to do this? Anyway, we did. Um, and then we've got several other productions that we're working on that we haven't announced yet. So um, uh, that will be other local language productions around the world. So it's, it's uh, you know, become a very big enterprise. Um, it, it is daunting in terms of moving from opening those four productions that we've produced to now adding the licensed productions in these other countries and just, you know, it takes a gear shift for the company to say, okay, well, you know, it takes one set of people to actually get something open and it takes another level of infrastructure to actually run that around the world. And it's a big business, you know, and, and it's big export dollars that are coming back to Australia as well. And I know you haven't asked me about this, but I'm just going to go ahead and Please say do. it. I'm sure it's on my list. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, the economic argument as well as the cultural argument is, is writ large in the example of Moulin Rouge. Mm. I mean, a show like that can be a billion-dollar business. And you think about all of that licensing money coming back. We don't earn a billion dollars by it. Can I just say that? <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of um, turnover, ticketing... Um, the kind of repatriation of, of royalties, license fees, um, you know, management fees. Uh, it's it's money that's coming back into the country. And I think the argument for government supporting new content and um, coming up with a better investment scheme that's an incentive to investors, we don't have anything like the West End has or like Broadway has. And I think really it could be one of the kind of biggest factor that moves the needle to support the creation of more... Do you think that, 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 that I think there's a shift happening at the moment? We've got a minister yeah. for the arts at yeah. last, which is fantastic. Yeah, and um, the arts have their own sort of portfolio. acknowledgement yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, isn't that just incredible after nine years? And mm. I mean, I thought Tony Burke's speech yesterday was just inspiring. Yeah. And um, to think that, you know, we're not just going to be part of a department where arts isn't even in the name. Um, it's, I think, a, a, a great moment of relief for, for many, many people. Yeah. Well, Carmen Pavlovich, you are an inspiring person too. Oh, um, thank you. Yes, continued triumph to you and um, and Global Creatures. Uh, took us for opening night on on, on Saturday, uh, playing at the Capitol Theatre, isn't it? And and starring Simon Burke and Alinda Chidsey, yep. Des Flanagan, Andrew yep. Cook, and uh, Samantha Dodome. Yeah, fantastic cast. Um, and featuring over seventy songs. 75. 75. <laughs> I stand corrected. Specifically. Nick will correct me later. Probably. I love this bit. Co uh, I've written this bit. Co-conceived, built, nurtured and loved by my guest tonight, Carmen Pavlovich. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thanks, everyone, for um, taking the time to uh, join us for this uh, recording tonight. Um, we're here for the next two Thursdays. Next week, I'm talking to Julie Lynch and Jennifer Irwin, who are two women at the top of their designing game. Um, and then in the third week, Declan Green, who is the artistic director at Griffin Theatre Company. So we'd love to have your company again, should you be free. Um, I invite you now to go out and enjoy Powerhouse um, up late. 
uh, with a fashion theme tonight. Next, next week is ballroom and the third week is queer. So there's, there's plenty to be enjoyed um, over this um, vivid festival. Thank you also to the Powerhouse staff who have made tonight um, a, a wonderful experience. Duncan up the back and Kate, very much appreciate it. Um, thanks for listening at home in, in podcast land. If you just can put the ironing away now and um, look forward to uh, chatting again with you next week. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. It was great. Oh, thank you. Oh, no. <laughs> oh we're still on. <laughs>